0: In the three months, I'd lost half my body weight. I was below 50 kilos, and this nurse put me back in bed. She says, Mr Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of, was failing with letting down the people there that I was supposed to
0: support. Things went south.
1: You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a manfighter. Being this around big, tall like. trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting There's to other moments in his life during There's battle. No easy You
0: not
1: going to get blown off. You know a no, part of this The this story
0: of transformation is powerful.
1: Gary Wilson is a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment. Gary survived a catastrophic helicopter crash in Afghanistan on 21 June 2010. Three Australians lost their lives in this crash, Ben Chuck, Tim Applin and Scott Palmer, as well as a US serviceman. Gary was severely injured, including a traumatic brain injury. In this conversation with Thomas Kay, Gary shares his story of military service, the Black Hawk crash and his recovery afterwards.
2: I'm Thomas Kaye, speaking today with Gary Wilson. Gary, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Gary, tell us about your upbringing to start us off.
0: Uh, well, well so I was born in Coburn, Victoria, and then my parents split up and then moved. So I went to Werribee, then from Werribee, moved up to Bundaberg. So then I moved from sunny and then I dropped out of high school and joined the Army from there. So yeah, a bit of bouncing around.
2: Was there anything that inspired you to join the Army?
0: Not that I can think of, like. I didn't know of anyone directly in my line of family that was in the Army just wanted to do as I grew up. And as soon as I was old enough, I joined the Army Cadets and dropped out of high school and joined the Army Reserve before I was old enough to then leave town. So it was always something I knew knew that I wanted to do, so to serve my country and kind of helped to get out of Bundaberg because there wasn't much options for me there. So get out of town as quick as I could.
2: And so it was around 1998 that you joined the Army Reserve? From that time, it didn't take you too long to actually go full-time service in the Army.
0: Because so mum had to sign me up to the Army Reserve because I was a minor technically. So I put all my time focusing on the Army Reserve time, trying to be a soldier, let my schoolwork take a back seat. And then I got put into the um, Vice Principal's office one year, early in 98. So I was in year 12 and the Vice Principal said, like, why are you here? You're failing. So I said, up here I'm going to the Army. And then... Form application to go full time and I was accepted by October of 99 to then go join 3RAR.
2: So jumping forward then to 2000, you would deploy it to Timor. What can you tell us about that?
0: That was a massive eye opener. So I've been in the Army for a couple of months. I've done my arm reserve IOTs and basic training there. Then all of a sudden I'm deployed with an infantry battalion, in, like, in an Asian country. It's like quite an interesting experience. My eyes open the whole time. Like, learn just constantly, like, information overload of learning, the lingo and what to do and what not to do and who not to piss off. And, yeah, then when that time was up, we come back to Australia and get ready to go again. What was the
2: learning curve like going from that? Like, was it much of a realisation from doing all the training and it just being something that you're doing on home soil and then all of a sudden you're out in the field and you're actually testing your skills?
0: Yeah. When I was in our reserve, we were like one platoon in Bundaberg, which is a very small amount of guys just in one area. Then all of a sudden I'm in a battalion of 900 guys, like in the middle of nowhere in the bush going, you realise how much of a small fish you are in the grand scheme of things.
2: From what you knew to actually being out there, was there a learning curve from, it's like, oh, it's not just sort of you do these little bits and pieces. Was there lots that you had to learn while you're already out
0: there? Everyone has like all the, the basic routines and the morning routines and stuff. Like when you oversee, like how important that stuff is. Like, cause when you're in training, you go, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Then when you're actually on operations, yeah. Like this is a massive deal. You must like focus on like all of those little one percenters every day. So. What was your
2: role over there?
0: Just at Rothman, I was like the last man in the, it was a very small section. I was one of the guys in my section, so my predecessor, he um, apparently wasn't taking his um, doxycycline and then came down with like malaria and pneumonia, I think, and then had to be casovaced. So I was his replacement. So then I joined a section, they're like, who's this new guy? That's how I fit into the puzzle. Then it a very, very small piece at the back end of my platoon. I know joined my, my section. We were in um, the Akusi Enclave, which is like right in the middle of West Timor. Completely surrounded by Indonesia, like on three sides. It's an amazingly beautiful country. Like it's just so scenic and picturesque. But then you have to walk up into those bloody hills and they're quite steep and rugged and, and the afternoon rain gets quite slippery.
2: Jumping forward a bit then to 9-11, it's, it's a placeholder in everyone's mind. What can you tell us of your memory of
0: 9-11? I had a friend sharing my house with me. And I wake up and he's like, Gary, quick, come in here. We're going to war. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? I ran into his room and on the TV, it was uh, the second plane flying into Tower 2. Right, let's quick shave, quick off the work and start packing our gear and get ready to deploy wherever we're going because we just saw that as a, that was an act of war, like, there and there. So, we're like, wherever we're going, we we're go- obviously we're going to be called to come to defend and protect the United States because, like, we're partners in crime for everything, so...
2: So you, you knew pretty much instantly, like both of you, as soon as that happened, packed the
0: bags, Yep, we were off. We got back, we got to our battalions and got to throw our out together and into our platoons and everyone's already on the balcony, start packing their gear for DP1 inspections and the inevitable deployment that was coming our way.
2: So then in 2002, you find yourself back in Timor. How was this different to your first time there?
0: Everyone's kind of expecting it to be quite mundane because they're like, there's nothing happening. So everyone's like, oh, it's going to be a pretty boring rotation. And I wore one of those lonely planet guidebooks. And with the opportunity interpreter, I sat down with him every day and was practicing learning, learning sentences. By the end of our tour, I was then used as a section's interpreter because I'd learned how much of the language and I had a knack for learning languages. And he was replaced, and I was his replacement every patrol I was there to go and speak with the locals. And so I spent the whole time there was learning another language because I had the knack for learning languages, it would appear.
2: Where'd you get the idea to get that Lonely Planet guide to sort of give you that sort of promotion to be the interpreter down the track?
0: ADF provided like very small like country guidebooks. And we had to learn two phrases, which stop hands up, stop or shooter to challenge. Let's see how this goes and see if I could learn any more of the language because I'm going to, get going to be bored for a little while. When we came back from our rotation in 2002, I was then given a reward course, a three month like training course of language training down this Defence Force of Languages in Melbourne to learn Tatum officially for three months because I did so well with my learning the skills. So I thought they could use it again if we're going to go back to Timor again in a couple of years' time. And so then after I smashed the course, the tandem course in the School of Languages, I go back to three-hour and actually uh, background infantry battalions in peacetime which is nothing but training and pack marching and pack marching and a little bit more pack marching. And my shins decided that they, they weren't playing the game so I had to have surgery for compartment syndrome. So then after the surgery, I was facing 12 months of rehab. Oh, after 12 months of rehab, so I requested to go back down to the School of Languages and learn another language for 12 months so I could do training down there rather than wasting my time. Portuguese course was taken, so then they said, okay, how you Indonesian? Neighbours, our biggest neighbour to the north. So I did Indonesian, and then halfway through the course, there guys from EW Trade. They said, how about you come work with us? You know, I don't want to go back to being a grunt. So, I put the application in halfway through the year that was approved. So, they didn't actually go back to three hour at the end of it. And so then, School of Langs was then to the School of Signals in Melbourne, the other side of Melbourne.
2: Well, was there anything that sort of appealed to be a signaler or is just kind of something different?
0: There's something different. Like, so I was asking the band, I said, What do you guys do even? They said, We can't tell you. will have to kill you. I said, like, Come on, what do you guys do? You have to pass your top secret clearance. Know your personality, you'll love it. If you've it really well, because my cheekiness. <laughs>
2: That's what got you the role.
0: As soon as started, I was not the best digger, I saw a guy was in SIG and I said, you know, there's not that much walking when you're in SIGs. Fucking liars. When I got to postage to 2 Commando finally, uh, yeah. So all we did was walk and a lot of foot infiltrations and exfiltrations. So. Oh,
2: well, I guess uh, you'd had your new shins ready, so good uh, footing to the test. We did indeed. What well, can you tell us about the time that you met your wife, Renee? <laughs>
0: uh, this, um, this is a point of contention. A few of the guys I work with, and we decided to go to a pub and just talk some shit. And I was like, to have a guy's night. And she was there with some of her work friends because um, she was down in Canberra for um, the summer clerkship thing. I just graduated from uni The next to us in the beer garden. And then one of her friends commented on our tattoos and things. And then a whole head argument about tattoos and about where she was from. Because I said, she's from the Gold Coast. I said, the Gold Coast is a shit house. And she goes, I beg your pardon. So, well, I, last time I was out there in the Gold Coast because I have a, a sleeve tattoo on my arm, I was cute to have a few pals because they thought I was a biking. And she said, oh, well, you're a dick for getting tattoos. So, and they were talking and then she told me to fuck off. And yeah, then I was like, no, I'm not done with this argument. I want to keep arguing with this girl because she's pretty cute. And then, sure enough, went back out and found her in the beer garden, We chatted all night. And, yeah, then, yeah, they should been stuck with me ever since.
2: Since you've been together, have you got any more tattoos?
0: Yes, I have, actually. Back of my tricep, I always have like a big devil. And her, Lady Nuna, why do you have the devil? Why do you not have Jesus? I have the, the Virgin Mary on the back of my other arm now as a tribute for her. They give me the good books with her, so.
2: That's good. So then when did you uh, actually end up marrying your wife?
0: I meant to get married in um, October 2010. But um, unfortunately, I was still in hospital. So we had to get postponed until the day she always forgets. On the 2nd of March, 2011. So we had to postpone it for a little while.
2: Jumping back to the military career, in 2005, you joined the SIGs and then you're later attached to the commandos as a signaller. How is that training with the commandos compared to all of the training that came beforehand?
0: Charles playing comparison I was then to DST for a little while, then from DST, then to Tucumano. And when I was in Canberra at DST, because I was doing shift work in an office based environment, my health wasn't really a, the key focal point. So I was getting quite um quite round and pudgy and slow. So then I got to Tucumano. One of the PGIs, his goal was either every day I'd make someone spew or someone cry. So that's how hard yeah. he used to smash us. So I had to work really hard the fitness as well as professionally as well to make sure I was worthy of staying in the unit because um, they say in the unit every day in a daily renew- renewable contract, you had to earn your worth every day you're there. So prove that you're worthy of staying in the regiment.
2: Was it one-on-one training or was it you training with everyone in, in the gym, like in groups?
0: For us, it was the whole squadron, the C squadron getting smashed and we were a bunch of pyrocs. They just decided to smash us harder maybe, I don't know, but or the fact that they knew that we were, were not as fit as the shooters, so they made us work harder to prove our worth to stay in the regiment as the attaching forces.
2: When you joined, was it still the 4 RAR, or had they already been renamed?
0: When I first marched in, I was still the 4th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment in Bracus Commando, but then 2009, I changed to the 2nd Commando Regiment under Colonel Paul Kenning.
2: So I guess after all of the training and probably getting in the best physical shape as you you possibly have been before maybe. How did you find out, or when did you find out as well, that you were then about to be deployed to Afghanistan?
0: When we got there in 09, I started getting into training. I was penciled in for being on the next deployment for 2010, provided I do a few other EW equipment courses and had to do another course in America and then, yeah, MRA then pass, had, a, had passed my my calf, so the commander fitness test. If you pass the calf, so if you fail the calf, they'll take off the roster to go overseas. So that was I had to prove my fitness there and then that I was fit enough to go on the with for the regiment.
2: So I guess everyone would find that motivation then to just push as hard as they possibly can to, to get there, to get on that list.
0: Yeah, and that's the funny thing with the BFAs and like fitness tests in the army, you generally don't try to push yourself as hard as you can you just try and beat that guy in front of you. So then when you get there you can rubbish him. Saying so, you know, I I ran faster than you. Just
2: Just make sure that there's someone between you and the Yeah. The rear line.
0: It's always just who can rubbish who. Like that's how we roll.
2: How did it feel when you got that news that you're going to be deployed to Afghanistan?
0: You don't really believe it until you are on the ground, like in Afghanistan, because there's so many different moving paths can get stopped and impact you or just take off the trip and trips could can be cancelled. So it's one of those things. You just, like I said, I wouldn't actually believe until I was actually on the ground. And then we got off the plane in Afghanistan. I was like, cool, let me, let's go home. So in
2: 2010, you are then deployed to Afghanistan as a signaler for November platoon. Before we get to the incident with the Black Hawk, what are some of the takeaway memories or things that stand out from the trip?
0: Our first patrol, that was a massive eye-opening experience as well. We were moving through a valley, and one of the lead bushmasters from the other platoon had a flat tire so they've pulled up we've all dismounted so they could change the tire for the Bushmaster and the tires on the Bushmaster's are massive and they're heavy and like a lot of the hard work and they change changed the tire on those things so they've changed, gone around the rig of changing the tire the new wheel's on the old wheel is back up on the side of the vehicle we have remounted and the Bushmaster then rolled forward barely a meter or two and they hit an IOD and blew the exact wheel that they just changed off of the truck so we go okay, look, everyone dismounted. Then we got um, followed up by a small arms engagement with um, a few rifles. We got filled the Taliban and I climbed up in the hills around us and started shooting at us. Everyone then had to, like, scatter up the hills and engage and defend our instant instant harbour. I got the call to dismount my gear and run up the hill and help provide some overwatch up there with um, some of the snipers. First time we saw the way in Afghanistan to get shot at, like, what's going on here? And I asked, well, what, so do, you, do you still want me to go up this hill? And the boss goes, just fucking keep moving. So there's me and my interpreter running up this hill. And so I couldn't focus on anything else. All I could hear was my heart just beating in my ears, just pounding away. I got to the top top of the hill and the other guys from the section are already up there waiting for me to get there. They go, shit, man, did you hear that? I'm like, hear what? They said, a 107 just went over our heads. There's a 107mm rocket went pushing past us. So yeah, right. Like that could have been like first trip, first engagement, my last engagement. So it gets the adrenaline going. The other funny part about that was um the JTACs, the guys who call in um, the fast air and the, the aerial support, my mate, who's our JTAC for our platoon, he had a good eyes on the target. So he goes, oh, I'll call the JTAC in for the Bushmaster, the whole boss, and his boss, because his boss's first JTAC call as well." He goes, no, no, I'll take it. So like, on the comms, listening to three JTACs, arguing over who got to call in the the fast air for the... Destruction of the Bushmasters, like, like, you hear him, like, how, like, his thunder got stolen from under him, so.
2: Very much a trial by fire.
0: Yeah. It was a whole... Paper, scissors, rank.
2: Oh, it's got to be, you know. It's not every day you get to do that.
0: No, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. So then, then we had another job. I left a lot, a lot of my cold weather kids behind. So I carried some cold weather kids for my interpreter. So because obviously his cover and safety is kind of paramount for me because I needed him to focus on his job as being at the best of his ability. So, you know, like that afternoon, it rained. And then that night, it got a pretty cold and chilly. We woke up in the morning and all the hill around us was covered in snow. And all I had was my cams, my pants, and I think it was just a rain jacket on. And I was freezing my ass off. Then um, as I'm waiting to be extracted, like the next morning, you can see the Blackhawks coming up. us as a storm rolling through the valley towards us. We finally got the Blackhawks, finally got in. We got, got on board these Blackhawks. As we're extracting, we peeled off from the hill and then down through into the valley and, and to do that they could to get going. Like the wind wind just hit us really bad. And the Blackhawks that I was in... As we're screaming down this valley, the wind pushed us and spun the whole aircraft ninety degrees to the left and us back around like the whole aircraft was getting bounced around. And I was myself because I was like, this thing's gonna we're gonna be like we get our black hawk is going to crash. And one of the snipers that I was working with, he goes, Oh no, it's before we got back to Tarankart and I was like, That's how I'm I'm done. I don't want to do any more black hawk stuff again.
2: I think that would turn anyone's stomach being in there.
0: And he goes, No, no it's okay. The black hawk pilots go through this kind of training. They are ready for this. I so can fly through anything. He's also training himself back at home to become a helicopter pilot. So he was saying me how much they go through the training for, to become, to handle that kind of like poor weather conditions. Okay, it's okay to fly in Black Hawks again. We'll be safe. And the guy that talked me back into going back in Black Hawks and keeping with the mission was Ben Chuck.
2: That's a real tragic irony, as Ben Chuck is one of the three Aussie commandos killed in that helicopter crash where you're severely injured. But before we get to that crash, I understand you're also involved in a rather famous and
0: pretty significant battle. So we're in the Battle of Chawali Cot. there we we were, was our last mission that we're just in. So it was, like, it was stupid hot, like 54 degrees. Like, you know, sitting in the sun, getting shot at with, like, rifles and rockets and all that good stuff. And because I was smoking, I'd sum a lot of the ground. And then working away, working away, and then pop at my feet, like, this, like, pop there just kicked up. Like, I thought, what well, the hell was that? And my sergeant goes, contact. And like, everyone's had to hit the deck. I've been shot at. And nothing, nothing else happened. Like, I just ran like to be shot at just once. And, like, really close shot. One shot. Normally they fire a few rounds. And it's all calmed down. God, I could go for another smoke. Where's my lighter gone? And then my lighter actually had exploded in the heat. And my sergeant called contact from the lighter being blown up. So the rest of the platoon that were down there in the green belt resting, they go, they caught us on the, the, the radios and said, Are you guys still in contact? And my sergeant goes, no, no. Zulus' lot exploded. And in the, the rockets of all the battle and all the gunshots and stuff, you hear the guys in the green belt below us on the in the down below us laughing. So yeah, it's a fun thing to laugh or laugh at, so but we come back from being like you've been in contact for a day or a couple of days and stuff. The first thing we would do, we get back into the barracks was shower, then play Call of Duty. It gets around there, we're going, like, like, couldn't you guys get enough of that stuff? But it was their way of venting and just unwinding, so.
2: (laughs) Many lives change forever on June 21st, 2010. You're in a Black Hawk helicopter. It's 3.39am, pitch black. You're on board one of the four helicopters going fast and low moments away from reaching a target. Then things go catastrophically wrong. The helicopter hits the ground near a dried creek bed and rolls, causing significant damage. Three other 2nd Commander Regiment soldiers were killed, as well as an American soldier. Seven Australians, including yourself, were wounded to various degrees. What are your last memories before the crash?
0: Last memories before the crash was from the day before... My interpreter, Shawali, had returned to the U.S. to see his family for his um, return to country for his leave because they run on different bosses to us in Afghanistan. Charlotte Shawali came back on, on task. So I was through the holiday, day getting his gear reissued and briefing him about the mission and who's going to be going on that night. A lot of running around the whole day. Then finally got some, got some meals uh, from memory, grabbed my equipment. So Renee and I had a, a deal before I deployed. Before, every time I went outside the wire, I would call home and say I loved her and just had that last conversation should the worst ever happen. There was one job About midway through the tour, I forgot to call. God, I was in the shit. And I finally got back in contact. I said, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. I'll, I promise I'll never not call you again before, before a mission. I ran past the phone in the hallway. I thought, Nice, nah, it's going to be a quick mission. I'll call it when I get back. But that was my last memory for that day. I woke up three months later on. But what I've been told from... So it was from the guys on the ground and from the official report was that, as he said, a 339 were lowering to to lean, completely pitch black darkness. Like, even our no-vision gear was completely useless, Staff Sergeant Brandon Silk was the loadmaster who was killed. His last words were on record. He asked the police, he said, how low are you taking this thing, boss, because he can see the ground. The next response was the sound of the Black Hawk smashing into the ground at stupid fasts. Um, it was over 100 knots. Then, as the black Hawk crumbled and tumbled to its resting place, most of the guys were flung out along the way. Staff Sergeant Silk had been killed. Trevor Burkham, the pilot, had suffered a massive spinal fracture, and myself. When the other two black horses circled around, the to provide Kazakh, Fourth chopper remained airborne to provide overhead security for us. As the guys rushed towards us on the ground, the medic found me by the wreckage trying to crawl away. My body must have known that I was safe and secure. And then collapsed. And I started to collapse into my coma and started convulsing. And the medic had to then, because I started to stop breathing, he had to intubate me so I could breathe and give me anti convulsion medication. And because of the convulsions, my jaw had seized shut. And luckily for me, that I had smashed my face in and snapped the tooth in half. So apparently, he used the gap in the tooth of my face to force the tube down my throat through the gap. Otherwise, he had to perform an emergency tracheotomy in the desert in pitch black darkness, which wouldn't have been pretty. Before we deployed, we had to buy our multi-cam uniforms because we had this whole company made a blanket call that everyone had to buy multi-cam uniforms that we all matched when we deployed on the outside the wire. They cost us, because I wasn't a qualified commander, I was on a lower pay grade than everyone else because as a base holder and all the gear cost us 400 bucks. I was a about the most of the tour. So the rest of the guys in our room that like how much they cost us and everything. Our JTAC, who was also a roommate, he took great pride and um, cutting them off of me. And he's like, oh, Gary's going to hate this. And he's like, as he's chopping them away. So, for <laughs> listening, me 400 bucks. <laughs> so then as I was getting onto the chopper, and I was still, I was still convulsing, even though I was the anti-convulsion medication, I was still in a really bad way. <laughs> then actually punched me in the, in the leg to tell me not, As his way of saying, don't give up. I think I was on the second emergency chopper. There was a like, ferrying guys back and forth to Kandahar. And yeah, it was then again, how they were massive, trying to stabilize all of us so then we keep it then secured enough, then transport back to Germany to the Lancelot Medical Facility. And then from there, it was then to Westman Hospital, where I still remained comatose. home, but I was starting to wake up slowly, but I have no memory of this, to the Mount Wilga Rehabilitation Hospital in Hornsby, in Sydney, where I actually had my first memory. So, a very long time of having zero memory.
2: What was it like when that gap was filled in, that three-month gap that you have no memory of, no recollection of, from leaving to go on a mission that you thought would be over before you you know it, call Renee after you got back, to then waking up in the hospital and having your first memory in Ornsby. Was it unbelievable or...?
0: it's kind of unbelievable because I still didn't quite understand what had happened because, I you know, my first memory was I woke up, I was kind of awake and I was in a chair, I was tied to, to a chair, I was restrained. And there were people moving behind me. I couldn't work out what they were saying. I was like, the hell am I still in Afghanistan? I had no idea where I was. I'm in a dark room, tied to with a chair, like this doesn't make sense. Have I been captured? If so, how? And I was like, I'm going home. I'm going on my feet, I'm going feet first. I'm getting out of here, I'm going home. So I undid what I could and in my mind, I was 100% like fit and able bodied So I got up to run and my foot didn't work. So I stumbled as I fell forward. I went to catch myself with both my hands like a push-up. My left arm was like tied to my fellow, I was fused to my chest. So I smashed my face into the ground as I fell and took a lump of like a chunk of my tongue off and blood in my mouth. I was like, this isn't right. So then I went to curse and swear as you normally would, but I couldn't, couldn't even say a word. I was like, groan. I was like, this isn't right. One of the people behind me came around and picked me up and put me back into the bed. I was like... What's going on here? I was one female nurse without being sexist. This heck one girl picked me. I moved back into bed because in my mind I was 80 plus kilos. In the three months, I'd lost half my body weight. I was below 50 kilos and this nurse put me back in bed. She says, Mr. Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash. But you're home and you're safe now. It's been a very long process of understanding like putting all the puzzle pieces back together. So it's been a journey. It's
2: one way to describe it.
0: Pretty bad way to wake up, like thinking you've been captured, and then realizing you, you're in. Um, and apparently, I was in the chair because um, they called them tremors as you're trying to wake up from a coma. As my body was trying to relearn how to use itself again, and the brain was trying to reconnect to all the muscles and learn them, I pulled the catheter out and I thought, like, I've done that before. I, tried, I just wrecked the bed, I broke the bed apart. And
2: hey, did you say you've done that before?
0: Apparently, I, I did it in, in one of the tremors in Westmead. I think, like, so I'd done broken beds and, like, I used to pull the tubes out and they had my hand bandaged up and, like, apparently I was handcuffed to the bed at one stage because they had my hand, that was all burnt and broken, bandaged up and I pulled all the bandage off and handed it with my good hand. I just pulled it apart and handed it to them so they had to tie both my hands down and...
2: (laughs) That explains their restraints.
0: Yeah, so, like, I was kind of the, um in the agitation phase of the waking up they're like no this guy is like needs to be restrained <laughs> because I just want to get out of there and go home. So
2: So once all of the confusion cleared and you realised what was going on around you and where you were, what was your exact extent of your injuries?
0: It's a long list. So basically almost all of my foot was crushed. So my midfoot through my ankle was just crushed. I broke my left knee, my left hip. A couple of left ribs, I stabbed my ulna in my wrist, uh, broken knuckles and fingers, they call from boxes, they call it a boxes fracture. My nose, my upper jaw, and my teeth got broken in half, plus the brain, brain injuries, which is like with the bifrontal low bruising, uh, and a diffuse axonal injury, which is like shaken baby syndrome, and the brain being tossed around the inside of my bounce around the inside of my skull.
2: Can you tell us about the role that Renee played in supporting you during the recovery process and what followed in the coming months?
0: From day one, as soon as she knew I had like a risk, she understood like she learned and read the book, The Brain That Changes Itself and, and learned about neuro rehab and all that stuff. Like in my room, like in the hospital, she would like make made a major rule that no one's allowed to be upset or cry in my presence. They're going to be upset. They have to go outside. So like she would be always protecting me. So she's been protecting me since she saw me in Germany. So that, And she's been a key driver for me to get better because if I'm bad me, she has to go to the gym or how amazing she's been through everything for me. So as well as for the other families in the space, so for the other families who were affected by this crash.
2: It's now been over 10 years since the accident. Can you tell us what your biggest challenge was? Was it more of a physical or psychological trauma that held you back?
0: Well, initially it was a bit of both. It was um, psychological it was me trying to accept the fact that my career was over. I didn't know what I was going to do with having to leave the army, but the former chief of the army had said like that I always have a job in the army, and I wouldn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And physically, there's um the part of it was trying to relearn how to use all the muscles again and actually walk, and my mid foot to my ankle was like, annihilated. Renee described means mincemeat in the sock. The surgeon who reconstructed my foot, he came and saw me when I was in a hot, one of the hospitals, and said, "I'm sorry, mate. I did the best I could to reconstruct your foot, but I don't think you'll ever run again." So the next year. We ran half run or tried try run the Sydney City to surf. We did the Sydney City to surf in two hours and 52 minutes. In the, um, I'm always on trying to improve and keep getting better. So the next year we did it in two hours and two minutes. Well, that's pretty impressive. So then the year after that, we then did um, the Sydney the Blackmoors Bridge Run, which is nine Ks over the Harbour Bridge and around Sydney CBD. It's nine Ks and that was in an hour and two minutes officially. But... Uh, well, I think by the time I got to the sideline, the finish line was about 59 minutes. So I was pretty happy with that. But then as things progressed, the arthritis kind of came to in the foot and the bones. I have pretty pronounced post-traumatic arthritis, he called it. So the arthritis, a big pain, then have muscular contractions from um, They call it muscular spasticity, where the muscles are constantly kind of trying to contract down my left sideline through my foot and through my hand, through my arm and my hand. But I spoke with a friend of mine, a little while ago, uh, who's at WMT, and I asked him how he goes with, with phantom pain, and he said he uses a mindfulness and meditation practice where he tells his body and his brain that the feet aren't there anymore, so there's no pain in the feet. So I then use, that, I tell my muscles, I tell myself to relax the muscles that there is no pain, because I'm not actually like in physical pain, so through that process of mental, mental focusing, I can actually relax the muscles and take the pain. The pain goes away in the last week since the anniversary of the crash, like it's generally around June each year, I tend the pain tends to flare up because I'm more reminiscent of why I have this pain initially. So then when I focus on the pain, the pain then increases and accentuates because of um, the more you focus on it, the more it raises the head essentially by learning how to not pay attention to it or to pay attention and tell, tell my body to relax the muscles. The pain essentially goes away.
2: I guess the recovery process is, it's, it's a long road. And definitely, any injuries to the brain are traumatic and long-lasting. How has the injury to your brain affected your day-to-day life?
0: With the brain injury, I get um, I have trouble multitasking. It gets hydrated. Like yesterday, taking the rubbish out to the bin, I can making. I then saw something else I needed to be doing. I did that. And then did something else. And just like I need to try and actually focus on one task and finish that one task, and then going to the next task. That plus. My, obviously, my speech is still a massive hurdle for me. I can't really think much else.
2: You've now got a career as a personal trainer. So, you're a performance coach and a mentor, PT and nutritional qualifications, helping people to be a better version of themselves, to perform better, to play better, to have a healthier life. What steered you in that direction?
0: By knowing training actually helps your body and your brain feel better through exercise. I then found because I was posted down here officially to add for as part of the PT there. So, I wanted to become exercise physiologist through university through part of the upcoming medical class j43 which is extended transition i thought i could go to university and become an exercise physiologist so i can help other guys have been wounded and injured in service help them recover and move forward with their lives i then realized that university was going to be too hard for me and i wasn't really cut out for university and that kind of study i then found coaching like i thought actually well, i can do coaching i can do pt so if i can become a pt Uh, So then I've been through TAFE and become a qualified PT and then started with bare coaching because i see back in 2010, my life was stripped bare. I've had had to do everything all over again from even breathing for myself again to walking and learning to be upright, walking, talking the whole gamut from go to way to help show people so they can learn that with a good diet, good exercise and back to the basic movement patterns with a good basis, things can be moved forward and built stronger from then on. Is
2: it, outdoor boot camp style personal training
0: can do outdoor boot camp training i can do in the gym i can do like online coaching and give advice and i can do dietary advice online and then also with the coaching with the help them with their mindset because he said, that but i refuse to accept my condition i'm like i'm going to get better i'm going to get back and do this this and this because i hate being stuck at home i hate not being able to do anything so i want to help others keep moving forward with their lives as well
2: Is it something that you um, put into your routines to help other people then as well better their lives through your personal training? You also get them to increase their own mindfulness.
0: Yes. Yep. That's the plan. So we can work and change your mindset and help you move forward with your life and make everything improve it. Not make it better, but improve everything.
2: It's not just personal training and the nutritional qualifications you've done and helping people shape their lives. but. In 2014, you also had a stint in acting.
0: Technically, I was a professional actor.
2: What can you tell us about that?
0: The current Governor General, His Excellency David Hurley, when he was Chief of Defence, well, him and Mrs Hurley were in London. The British military, they ran a play called The Two Worlds of Charlie F, which is kind of a musical about being wounded, being in their return to service and return back into society. They're actually singing and dancing, and then the Governor General, David Hurley, when he came back, he's like, let's do an Australian version, but Australian diggers aren't going to sing and dance. So they put the call out for people to be involved in a play about being injured in service and things. So I put my name forward to help write the scripts and help with the active motivation, that kind of stuff behind the scenes. I was like, I'm not going to be an actor. We had like an actor's training camp in Sydney, at Sydney theatre company. And we're talking with the script writer and giving it, telling the script writer our parts of our stories. And then, Next scene, they go, okay, Gary, this is your character. You're doing this on stage. I was like, am I? Okay. So this goes. We then did a tour around the country. We started in Sydney, then bounced around to Kong, like Brisbane, Townsville, Darwin, Canberra, Melbourne, Adelaide, and Perth.
2: How did you find it going from boots on the ground and Timor in Afghanistan and being a commando to now being on stage?
0: Like the stage fright, my first like case of stage fright, I was there on, the, on my barrier when the colleague and on. I'm like, fuck, did you hear know those people? Like there 900 people in the, Sydney, in the Sydney theatre. That's 900 sets of people ready to judge us. Like the whole like, freaking hell, is started to sweat. i like, oh my God. I think it's like, we've done this enough times before, like in training and rehearsals. You know what we've got to do, let's get it done. Go back to like you know, military training. is just, you know the job. You've trained for the job. Just do the job. Turn your brain off. Stop thinking about it and just do what you have to do. And he's powered on. Except the Canberra show, because I knew one of the widows from my crash was in the audience. And I was like, I owe it to her to do the best I can. And my scene with the biggest scene was the final scene I had to recite the opening stanza from Homer's Odyssey. As I'm saying it, there the lines here written on the wall behind me. I flipped a couple of lines back to phone. Like, then we walk off. I'm like, ah, like, of all times to mess up, I messed up then. Hearing people crying, like, at my scene, I'm not that bad of an actor, am I? That one line. is <laughs> because my memory is quite, it's pretty poor and I'm trying to do a very somber scene and I'm like, I'm quite sad. But the fact I'm remembering these lines, I'm like half happy with myself for remembering the lines. I'm like, I got to right, I got to right. Wait, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. I'm sad. I'm pretend to be sad, be sad.
2: Definitely accomplished a lot. And you're also an ambassador for Soldier On. You've shared your story a lot over the years. What's the main thing that you want listeners of this podcast to take away from hearing your story today?
0: just the mindset if you have the right mindset anything can be overcome
2: well, Gary you're an inspiration incredible story incredible recovery and it's an honour to speak with you I'm Thomas Kay and you've been listening to Life on the Line
1: more of that music in just a moment Gary originally reached out to us asking that we interview his wife, Renee, but we've heard so much about the 21 June 2010 helicopter crash that we had to interview Gary as well. We are grateful to him for coming on the show. And join us this Friday for Renee Wilson's heartfelt conversation with Thomas Kay. I thought to myself, what am I going to do if they say we need to make a decision about whether we keep the machines on? For other perspectives on this helicopter crash, be sure to listen to a former operator of the 2nd Commando Regiment in number 92, Dean Parkinson, volume 2. We got hit from four sides all at once, deafening. And also in season 4, number 54, H, volume 5. But the suffering and the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, it was just fucking horrific and you'll hear a detailed description about the Battle of Shawali Kot in that interview with Dean as well. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email address is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and follow Gary Wilson on social media by looking up Bear Coaching, spelled B-A-R-E. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cap Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music It's All Right by The Externals, an Aussie band and the world's only Special Forces original rock band. Thanks for listening, unless we forget.
0: It's